these floods and droughts around the world, much of it caused by climate change, the prospect of halting and even reversing the damage might seem like an impossible task. But an inspiring and meticulously researched new documentary called Kiss the Ground reveals that a key to reversing climate change is literally right under our feet and as old as dirt, that we must begin building healthy soils. The film is available now on Netflix, and I'm very pleased to welcome its filmmakers, Rebecca Tickell, Josh Tickell, along with one of their subjects, actor and activist Ian Summerholder. Welcome to our show. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I was just blown over by the film. Rebecca, we've been focusing on cleaning the air and about reducing our dependence on fossil fuels as the way to stop climate change. But the message of your film is that healthy soil is the key to stopping and reversing climate change. Why hasn't that been a major part of the discussion until now? Well, certainly reducing emissions is one of the main things that we can all do to reverse climate change. But it's the thing that we all know to do. And the single most actionable thing that we can do to reverse climate change, which is regenerative agriculture, like you said, is largely unknown. It's not because regenerative agriculture is a new concept. It's been around for decades. The Rodale Institute has done lectures on this with people for a long time. But the peak of interest and kind of the peak, the peak of despair, I'd say, that we've gotten ourselves into around climate change finally has led us to a place where we're open to hearing this really important message, which is we can draw down all of that extra CO2 into our soil by bringing it back to life using regenerative practices. What's your background and how did you come to the environmental movement? Funny you should ask. Um, you know, I grew up in the entertainment industry. I was in a Christmas movie as a child called Prancer. And I uh -huh. really saw growing up that films have the power to change the world. And we've seen that happen with movies like The, the Cove and Chasing Ice, where they really have the power to change things. And so I actually saw Josh on the Today Show when I was a teenager. He was driving the veggie van across the country, and he was really spearheading a movement on how to get off of fossil fuels using a waste stream like used cooking oil, which he was using at that time to power his veggie van. And I remember being so inspired by that. And when I met him a few years later and I saw the veggie van parked in his backyard, well, that was 13 years ago and we've made 14 environmental films and had two children since then. So I guess you could say that's how I, I got into it. But Josh got into it a little bit differently. He grew up in an area called Cancer Alley, and I'll, I'll let him tell you about yeah, Josh, um, tell us about it. And also uh, tell us whether you think most people feel there's nothing that they can do to reduce climate change. Well, yeah, I, I did grow up in an area of Louisiana, much like Ian, that was once very beautiful, but has been somewhat desecrated by the petrochemical industry. And in answer to your second question, I think that the real sort of cynicism that we all feel has been from the last 20 years. You know, we found out about climate change. We were told to put light bulbs in and then it got worse. So, you know, that, that made everybody feel like, well, the planet's going to just boil and there's nothing we can do about it. And you and end your film we, with people saying that they switched to using paper straws as a way of combating climate change. Right. Yeah, we, we <laughs> that that seems rather pathetic. What do you say to people yeah. who, who say something like that? Well, 
look, paper straws are a good thing, but they're not going to fix climate change. They're addressing a plastic issue. And I think we need to distinguish where we're selling ourselves. You know, we become our own worst enemy. We become the used car sales, and then we believe the pitch, you know? <laughs> it's the, you know, we have these platitudes that we say, well, I recycle. Well, good, that's, that you should recycle, but that, that's not going to do anything about the climate. And so I think we need to distinguish what's a platitude and what's actually making a difference. And, and what we do in Kiss the Ground, the movie, which, you know, folks can find out more about on Netflix and kisstheground.com, is they can really see, here's how we put the carbon back in the soil, because that's the only place we have to put it. And we need to put it somewhere in order to change where the climate is going. Your film, uh, as we have been saying, deals with complex subjects like carbon sequestration, regenerative agriculture. Was it a problem translating those complex concepts into a form that uh, any moviegoer would easily understand? I would say yes. <laughs> we did hundreds of screenings with thousands of people who didn't understand anything that we were trying to say in this movie. That's true. And, you know, the, the feedback was just constantly make it more understandable, make it clearer, make it simpler. So we spent literally spent, you know, the better part of a couple of years just working on animations and graphics with NOAA and NASA satellite data, boiling it down into a visual language that, I mean, we've shown it to six-year-olds and they go, oh, I get it. Yeah, this is what we need to do. So I think we finally got that part uh, in the can, as they say. Rebecca, your film your is a... Your film is narrated by Woody Harrelson in his down-to-earth style, and he begins by saying, the truth is, I have given up, and the odds are, so have you. And then, of course, you go on to uh, to prove that that's not the case. But uh, how did he wind up being connected with the film? Well, remember the veggie van I, I was telling you about? He had his own yeah. veggie van, and he was driving around California back in the early 2000s, with Josh's book on a fryer to the fuel tank that taught people how to make biodiesel. So every time he'd break down, um, his, he'd hand his phone to his assistant and he'd, she'd call Josh to figure out how to unclog the fuel tank or whatever else had happened. And I can certainly vouch for that that happens. We've broken down pretty much in every city across America running on biodiesel. We love biodiesel, but unfortunately that's not going to fix the whole problem. And I think that that's what Woody also realized like us, which is, you know, driving around on biofuel, that's not really going to save the world, you know? And I think that he was really looking for something to do with, I think for him, it was, you know, I think he was angry and I think he was feeling despair like we were and everybody wanted to do something, you know, to really look for an actual solution. Um, you know, because all the things that we were doing up until that point just weren't cutting it. And the news that was coming in wasn't great. And so he, um, was the perfect spokesperson as far as we were concerned because this is something that he's truly passionate about. He's been working on this for decades and people love him. Like what a great what a great person to sort of us on this adventure to finding the solution to climate change. And talking about being passionate, one of the main subjects of the film is a conservation agronomist Ray Archuleta. Um well, before we go into how he <laughs> expresses his passion, what does a conservation agronomist do? <laughs> Ironically, the USDA is, is kind of this, it's, it's this interesting organization. It's a bit schizophrenic. On one hand, it promotes, you know, tearing up the earth and, and pouring tons of chemicals on it. On the other hand, it's got a very active arm 
uh, called the Natural Resources Conservation Service with people who are very educated about soil who go out and try to teach farmers how to conserve soil, how to build soil, how to build carbon, how to save water, uh, how to do a more conservational kind of farming that still makes money. And he says that farmers need to, quote, learn to farm like nature does. What does that mean? Well, Ray, you know, Ray has a very specific background. He's got a bit of Native American. He's he's uh, Latinx. So he sees uh, all the different spectrum of how people live and farm around the world. And I think 35 years of experience on American farms has taught him that we're very wasteful in America. We anticipate that soil will never run out. We anticipate that desertification will never happen and that the chemicals will never run dry. You can always open the tap and pour more chemicals uh-huh. on. What he's, saying is, what he's simply saying is, look, not everybody in all of the world has all of these magical chemicals to prop up dead soil. Why don't you make your soil live and then your plants will be healthier and then you don't have to use the toxic bad stuff. And, and agriculture in this country has evolved into mostly industrial operations, which focus on just a few crops like corn and soybeans that are dependent on the use of pesticides and, and chemical fertilizers. How did our agricultural system go from small family farms to these massive operations? Uh, is it because the U.S. government has been subsidizing the use of uh these destructive practices and uh, and uh, actually paying farmers to do things that your film says they shouldn't be doing, uh, Rebecca. In a roundabout, oops, sorry. either one of yeah, you. Well, I I think you. Go ahead. I think I think you nailed it. I mean, I, I'm actually a six. If you consider me a farmer, we have a small five-acre avocado farm here in Ojai where we actually made our film, kissed the ground in an avocado barn. If you can believe mm. it, for the last seven years. Um, so, but I'm a, you know, I'm the sixth generation farmer and I'm not the big farmer like my dad, soybean and corn in Ohio on a thousand acres of land. You know, we just have five acres here. Um, but you know, just for my dad, he, he went out of business. He stopped farming because it was no longer profitable for him. And he's the fifth generation. I mean, that in my family, they were some of the first white settlers in Indiana to start farming. And I think that basically farmers have been put into this industrial food system that ultimately doesn't allow them to actually connect with their land in a meaningful way. They don't really get to be the stewards of the land that their fathers and their grandfathers and great-grandfathers were because this technology and the subsidies ultimately has taken people off the land, managing such large swaths of land, trying to control the land in such a way that it no longer functions. I mean, you could you could almost compare it to America's medical system and you know which is something i think you you can relate what you're seeing right now with the climate and our immunity to also what's happening with our our health and immunity and you continue to to extract from the land and till the land and spray the land and the land no longer produces like it used to and you're having to pay more for inputs and the profits from the crops are far less it's not a sustainable, certainly not a regenerative model that can continue. And here I am with two, two children, you know, they're the seventh generation from a farming family. And, and so it's going to have to be a completely new system in order for it to continue, not one well, that's propped up by 
tax, tax dollars, but truly one where it's an integrated system, it's biodiverse, um, it has built-in immunity, and it creates nutrient-dense food. And that's a, that's a completely different model than the current one that we have that's making farmers go bust. And my tax dollars are helping to subsidize that, even if perhaps the presidents aren't. Um, if uh, farmers weren't being subsidized, would it be more profitable for them to practice regenerative agriculture and ranching than growing the corn uh, and, and soybeans that feed livestock in, in, uh, but not on the land? I mean, why is yeah. the government promoting this? Well, it, this system was, was created in the wake of World War II with something called the Green, Green, Green Revolution, which is mislabeled. But basically, the Green Revolution was a way to, to make certain companies very rich, concentrate animals into feedlots, and make very, very, very sick animals, which turns out to make sick people. Um, and the fee, and, then, and the animals in the feedlots are the ones that are producing all the methane that have, has given uh, these animals a bad reputation. Exactly. And so, unless you're, you know, you go in a deli in New York, unless you're eating kosher food, you know, or organic, you know, grass-fed food, it's very likely to be uh, from a feedlot. And so, that is unhealthy meat. That system makes some people a lot of money but it takes the money away from the farmer. And that's why we see farmers going out of business. The farmer that we show in Kiss the Ground, he's making $100 an acre every year. An average farmer makes $1 to $2 an acre a year. So yes, it's more profitable to do it this way. We've just been joined by Ian uh, Summerhalder. Uh, Ian, um, welcome to the show. You have created the Ian Summerhalder Foundation What's your mission, and how did you come to work with Rebecca and Josh on this film? You know, it's really wild. Um, Rebecca and Josh and myself actually met in 2007 in Venice, California, when they were working on fuel. And it came, you know, we instantly just all fell in love because we had the same mission. And Josh and I have this kinship um, not blood, possibly blood, though. It is Louisiana. It's a, crazy, uh, it's a crazy mix. But we actually went to the same high school. So we came from the same bayous in southeast Louisiana and grew up in a very delicate ecosystem. All of us had this shared love and understanding of the delicate balance of our world, meaning flora, fauna, and human. And our mission, you know, they obviously have become these acclaimed filmmakers with a voice and a, you know, a powerhouse uh, of, of that voice. And I always realized you know, that only through the spirit of collaboration, but true collaboration, was anything going to get done, particularly in the nonprofit sphere as it relates to climate uh, or education. So what I learned from this 10-year journey um, of, of running a nonprofit was that ultimately the biggest shift in change was actually going to come from business. Uh, and the future of business was the triple bottom line companies, right? People, planet, profit. But then how could you do this at scale? How could you create climate uh, change reversal while still building an economy without labeling it some green economy or labeling it with something that was going to turn people off. Well, the system and obviously the answer 
is with Josh and Rebecca and Kiss the Ground, which is that you can actually do, you can actually reverse climate change at scale, at this as one of these big big components. The, one of the big foundations of this is regenerative agriculture, and from that comes uh, a healthier climate, healthier soil, healthier people, healthier yields. You know, reviving farmer prosperity is something we take great pride in, and the farmers are going to take great pride in. So it's all we have the same message for the same family, and um, it, it was just such a powerful sort of melting of these elements coming together that we intend to take to, to the world. Not intended. We are. We are taking this to the world as we are on this phone call right now. And you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming online at WBAI.org, discussing a new documentary now available on Netflix called Kiss the Ground with its filmmakers, Rebecca and Josh Tickell, and uh, one of the people who appears in the film, actor and activist Ian Summerhalder. The, uh, the UN has gotten involved in this. According to the United Nations, the world's remaining topsoil will be gone in 60 years. So what's going to happen then? I throw this out to well, anyone who wants to answer. <laughs> Guys, well, our, our hope is that we don't get there. Uh huh. But it, we're, we're, we're moving very slowly, according to your film. There are people who are seriously committed, but we're just talking about a small number of people who are working to change things and to convince others to join them. Not true? Well, this is fortunately, this is a movement. I mean, Kiss the Ground, the film, is a result of thousands of people coming together to craft this message and to tell this story because now is the time for people to finally hear it. It's almost like we couldn't hear it until now, but now I believe that as people start to get this information and we start to close that information gap because most people have never heard of regenerative agriculture. So as people get the language, as people begin to understand the concepts of biosequestration and drawdown, and they start to see that pathway for in 30 years, we're in 30 years, we're starting to see drawdown and the carbon in the atmosphere it stops going up. It turns the corner and it starts going down. I think that that's going to open up a lot of people's minds and hearts to this message where before they may not have cared. There's going to be a lot of unlikely heroes and partnerships from all different walks of life coming together, regardless of their political views regardless of what it is that they do, whether they're a farmer or a soil scientist, who can clearly, working together, make this a reality. And so, yes, we're not on that pathway yet. And yes, 30 years does seem like a long time. But as people become aware of this and we get people composting and people growing food in their own backyard, people supporting their local regenerative farmers, talking to their farmers, finding out what their soil practices are in a loving, non-confrontational way, then we're going to start to see this exponentially grow. We're going to start to see drawdowns. Um, you know, this curve starts off slow, but once we get past that inertia, it's really going to start to move. And we're going to see soil regenerating instead of degenerating. So instead of two thirds of the earth desertifying, we're going to slowly turn that needle back and we're going to start to see deserts become rainforest. 
And um, I want to get to all of those things, uh, drawdown, desertification, regenerative agriculture. Uh, but let's get back to basics. One, one surprising fact in your film is that tilling the soil is actually bad for soil health. Uh, hasn't, haven't farmers plowed or tilled the soil to prepare for planting for, oh, I don't know, pretty much as long years. as they've been farming? Yeah, exactly. And, and we've been doing it without understanding how soil actually works. And that when you, when you till soil, you damage soil. But when you damage soil, you release carbon. And that's, that is what is so mind-blowing to people. And they, when they start to, it's like Rebecca just said, people in the ag world start to get this and they understand the language. And it is actually this, the, because I want it to be explained to me in layman's terms, because it, it, it's just so much easier to digest. And it is that simple, which is, you know, when we create a no-till regenerative large-scale and small-scale agricultural economy globally, the world will shift on its axis. And, you know, like Josh and Rebecca and myself talk about this, you know, Josh, the stats are by 2050, we're going to need to, you know, this is the other thing that people don't really understand. By 2050, we're going to have to increase our energy production by 50% to meet the demands of, you know, a, ma a much larger population. But what people don't really understand, and forgive me if you guys, you've already given them the stat, Josh, is what people don't understand is by 2050, we're going to actually have to produce 60% more calories to meet okay. the demand. Um, so so when, you think, when you look at those numbers and you step back and you realize we're going to actually have to produce more calories uh, in the food industry than we are going to have to produce energy, in the energy on the energy sector, in the energy sector, that becomes a daunting task, right? Especially with degrading soil. So, but, uh, but let me so get back to tilling, uh, which um, causes soil erosion. Uh, and uh, your film says uh, is one of the, the reasons for the Dust Bowl during the Depression. Uh, and and uh, steps were taken to change things around. Why are we in this situation today where only a small number of farmers are, are using alternative methods like the no-till drill? If you look at how America, the continent, was when Lewis and Clark went across the country. You know, they, they traversed a country that had prairies with tall grasses that grew approximately six feet high. Those tall grasses are what helped build and stabilize the soil. So the first thing settlers did when we introduced European agriculture into the U.S. is we tore up all that quote-unquote sod, we busted the sod, and we opened up the dirt. Once that happened, it opened the dirt to erosion. And that's why a good portion of this country is now, it's just silica. It's not, it's not actually dirt. It's just the building blocks of dirt. And so what, what we did is we essentially reversed an ecology. And farmers, there are huge numbers of farmers now going toward no-till. North Dakota is primarily no-till. There are other states that the primary form of agriculture in those states is no-till. And how does that work? How does no-till work uh, effectively if you're not uh, digging, uh, tilling into the soil? So basically, the machine looks almost exactly the same as a tiller. It's towed behind a, a, a tractor or a harvester, 
And essentially what it does is it makes a small slit into the soil, drops the seed into that slit, and covers the soil back. So it's an incision versus totally pulling the soil and tearing it up and turning it around. The disadvantage, you get more weeds. So you've got to create weed management. Generally, that's done by herding cattle across the land after the crop is harvested. So it's a multi-step process. You grow a cover crop, then you harvest then you harvest the cover crop with cattle. Then you plant your main crop, then you move the cattle and animals across, they clean up all the weeds, then you do it again. And this cycling rebuilds the soil. It rebuilds the nutrients and ultimately rebuilds the wealth of the land. And in the past, we had we could rely on buffalo to do a lot of that, couldn't we? When the Europeans came here, buffalo, millions of buffalo were roaming uh, throughout the middle of this country. And you film, you say that the uh, the U.S. military, the U.S. Army killed off most of those buffalo as a, uh, a way to starve Native Americans? Exactly. The railroads were coming across, and this was this was a very convenient way to destabilize a population which they saw as uh, cantankerous and difficult and uh, in their way. So they just killed off the food supply, but that, that, that created what's called a reverse trophic cascade. You kill the largest beast on the land and the entire ecosystem starts to fall apart. And what we're finding now in places like Yellowstone National Park, when we reintroduce the largest beasts, we reintroduce the wolves, and we reintroduce the, the elk and things like this, the ecosystem rebuilds. So what we found is the most important, the keystone species are the big species, but you have to get all the other species back as well. So yes, we don't need buffalo roaming across the land. We can use cattle. They're, they're very similar. We have about 60 million head of cattle in the U.S. We used to have 60 million head of buffalo. So we can do things with different pieces of animals and different pieces of the ecology to rebuild the central resource, which again, you know, we don't have healthy soil. We don't have healthy food. If we don't have healthy food, guess what? Humanity gets sick and a little virus comes along and all of a sudden everybody's keeling over. We have to go back to the basic form of nutrition, which is where the plant gets its nutrition is the soil. Rebecca, you were about to say something when I got us into that. You know, I just think that talking about animal integration is such an important part of this because we like to keep things neat and tidy and take our animals and stick them over here in a capo and then do our row crops over here. Um, but that's not how nature works. And so when you asked Josh about how do we farm um, like nature, um, you know, talking about these buffalo roaming in this, what they considered a sacred hoop. So they were roaming in this circle seasonally. The Dakota, Dakota, Dakota people were following them around, living in the abundance of the fertilized land that they would leave behind. It took less than 100 years after we killed off those buffalo to completely see that soil degraded that had been built up so strong that we had built America on. It took less than 100 years for that dirt to blow away. And it's a perfect example of how we can look back in history and see examples of what we're talking about. I mean, this isn't even, you asked about tilling, you know, no-till. Like you said, from the beginning of time in agriculture, our, our mentality has been go into this abundant land, extract as much as we can, feed a population of people that are growing 
over-extract, start to see desertification, suddenly you have more people than you have resources to provide for, and then you have to see an exodus, which leaves, you know, war, famine, drought. This is biblical. This has been going on since the beginning of recorded time, where we as humans have done this. But never before have we done this on a global scale. You've seen, we've seen, I don't know, 22, 24 civilizations wipe themselves out from this exact method of over-extraction and overpopulation, but we've never seen it done on a global scale. So we can take those two-thirds of desertified land, desertified land, and we can completely turn that around by going back to those techniques of integration, of grazing, of moving the cattle, like Josh said, just like a predator would. would. The reason you move cattle and you don't keep it in one place for too long is because they're going to do what we think tilling would do, but actually way better. They're going to fertilize it. They're going to water it. And then they're going to move on and leave life and abundance and fertilization in their path. So we can do this. We need more calories. We just have to think about it differently. The UN has promoted certain measures through the, the Paris Agreement that promote carbon sequestration and regenerative agriculture. Uh, but three key countries, the United States, China, and India, have refused to sign the agreement. Can, well, can it work if these three countries don't sign on? It can. Uh, the United States is obviously an agricultural powerhouse, uh, as is China. Uh, as is India. I mean, these are three of the largest land masses in the world. But, you know, what's what's interesting about China and uh, also India is there's probably more willingness to change. China has the ability to change faster. Um, We'll be doing a huge tour with the movie in China starting next year with Ian, actually. And the, the exciting thing about China is they'll try three different things, and the government will promote all three. And the, the winning one They'll just do as a national policy. So we anticipate China actually going this way before the United States. And when, you know, over a billion people and a landmass that size, uh, they've already started experimenting with this. So has India. Uh, I think we'll see those landmasses change. And then the United States, you know, will basically be the, the last one to change. But it will also change. According to Ray Archuleta, uh, carbon runs the system, but we've been told that carbon emissions are bad. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we will look into that, why why carbon is not bad and uh, what we have to do to change the way we deal with carbon, why carbon is so actually so valuable to uh, the health of of our soil and, 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 and all of our food. My guests are Rebecca and Josh Tickell, uh, who have made a film called Kiss the Ground, and uh, actor and activist Ian Summerholder, who appears in the film. Uh, and uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, back to our conversation with uh, filmmakers 
Rebecca and Josh Tickell, and one of the people who appears in their film, Ian Summerhalder, the film called Kiss the Ground, which is available right now on Netflix. Uh, and oh, so let's get back to that whole idea about carbon. Uh, as I said, we've been told that carbon emissions are bad, but uh, the film makes the point that carbon actually is very good when it comes to, to soil health. Can soil take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turn it into a positive thing? In essence, yes. <laughs> How does that well, work? Well, soil is 50% uh, carbon by weight. If you take the carbon out of the soil, what you're left with is essentially sand. You know, you're left with silica. You're left with the basis of sand. Desertification, um, so in effect. Exactly. Without without that carbon, you get you get this dust like substance. And most people don't know because we drive on freeways and we live in cities. But if you're driving on a freeway and you you see a bunch of crops on the side of the road, you know, if you actually pull off and walk into the field and put your hand down in most places in America, what you're going to pull up with your hand is going to go straight through your fingers like dust because the carbon is no longer in the soil. And so what we want, and when we see it, we know instinctively is that black, rich, chocolatey soil. That blackness in the soil, that is the carbon. So scientists in Europe, across America, all around the world have done the calculations. We've got about a teraton, a thousand billion tons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that industrial humankind has put there. A teraton of CO2 in the atmosphere. The legacy bulbs all. Legacy load. You can screw in light bulbs all day long. You can drive Teslas. Nothing changes the legacy load unless you pull it down. The only place we can put it, we can't put more in the atmosphere. We can't put more in the so in the oceans. The only place we have left is the soil. It just so happens the soil has the capacity to store 100% of that teraton of CO2. And when we but do under, that, under current circumstances, even if we put no more CO2 into the atmosphere, uh, it won't reduce what's already there unless we change our approach to agriculture? Correct. You show a NASA Correct. supercomputer model of the amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere and how it changes over the year. Um, does it increase when the soil is tilled and decrease when plants are growing? We believe, based on NASA and NOAA data, that the largest emission of CO2 in the Northern Hemisphere is during the period where we till and plow the entire Northern Hemisphere. That is, that is the spring season. So for the first time in the film, we have this new connection. Wow, this cycle of putting CO2 in the atmosphere, you can literally see it with this NASA data. It is stunning. And so we realize the power the soil has on the atmosphere. Which is good Rebecca. news because the atmosphere in the ocean can't absorb any more. So mm. it's, it's such a relief to know. And yes, we should, if we can afford it, drive an electric car or a Tesla um, or not have a car at all. But even if we did, even if we all did that and we all stopped driving cars and we stopped all of the emissions, like Josh said, that teraton of carbon, that legacy load isn't going anywhere unless we find a way so to store down. it in the ground. Right. Why are microorganisms in the soil important? How do modern, modern agricultural practices affect the, 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 the microbes in the soil? 
Ian, you want to take this? Ian? Well, well, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And, and the thing about where the simplicity lies is actually when people, when people hear it, they go, oh, I get it. If you look at the earth and the human body, and I'll make this really quick, but if you look at the earth and the human body, it's the same biological process because we are, right? You have to realize the, the lungs of the planet are its trees. You cut out all the trees, the organism can't breathe. But also, too, all the the ocean's river systems are the vital cardiovascular system carrying all the vital nutrients to the organs so the organism can continue. But the health of the human body is completely reliant on the balance of a healthy gut biome, right? Our immunity and our health starts in our gut. It's the exact same way for the planet. So we have these, we have these microorganisms in our body, these microbes that are carrying out most of the basic uh, things of, of life, digestion and, and uh, whatever else? Precisely. And basically that, the idea of that is that when you heal and you build up the microbiome of the soil, you increase the health of the planet beyond the shadow of a doubt. And the, and the cool thing about like what, what they've so beautifully put together in the film is, is that when you pull down that legacy load of carbon or any carbon that we put in the atmosphere, it goes down into the root systems and creates this carbon glue that actually feeds these microorganisms. Mm. It's the most beautiful cycle because, like, you know, that those microorganisms are the key to to a lot of the success of. They are the key to healthy soil. And again, just to reiterate, just if anyone else is just coming on and listening to, like Rebecca just said. Uh, we can take every plane out of the sky, every maritime shipping vessel out of the oceans. We can shut down every coal-fired power plant on the planet right now, and climate change would still happen at an alarming rate because of agriculture. So that healthy soil biome, microbiome, is the same as a healthy gut biome. And we have to start looking, you know, it's really wonderful to look at it as the same biological process. And then all of a sudden you start to say, you know, I was explaining this to um, some six- and seven-year-olds just the other day, and they got it immediately. They, they realized, yeah. oh, wow, the health of my tummy keeps me healthy. The health <laughs> of the soil keeps the earth healthy. I just okay, Rebecca, does anymore. spraying <laughs> pesticides kill those microorganisms? That's exactly right. I mean, I th- we are what we eat. So if we were eating food that's been sprayed with a neurotoxin, like a pesticide or an herbicide, and then we put the head in our mouth, those same neurotoxins are going to affect the bacteria that we have that actually is what's eating the food that we put in our mouth. We don't actually digest our own food. We have bacteria that lives in our gut that actually di- they digest the food we eat, and then we process the bacteria poop. That's what we're actually eating. So if we don't have bacteria, healthy living bacteria in our gut, we're not actually able to absorb the nutrition in the food that we're eating because we're killing off our body's ability to do that. So when you grow food in a regenerative way, not only are you increasing the life in the soil that's then drawing down the carbon and stabilizing the climate by saving off fires, reversing drought, um, drawing in rain and and increasing the small water cycle, but you're also creating nutrient-dense food that when you put it in your mouth supports that life in your body and also allows your body to break it down and absorb the nutrition. 
That doesn't happen if you're eating food that's been grown in a way that's devoid of life and sprayed with neurotoxins. What we're then doing is also killing the life in our body. And you, you say in the film that the pesticides and synthetic fertilizers used in farming today actually come out of the development of lethal chemicals by the Nazis. Are we spraying our plants with the same chemicals that we use in the gas chambers? Yeah, basically, uh, you know, Zyklon B was a precursor to what we are using today, which is 2,4-D and um, other glyphosate. have the same. Glyphosate is a little different, but it, the effect is the same. It kills microbes. It kills the gut microbiome. It creates cancers. Uh, we know that from Monsanto's own research, which they redacted and then had to divulge in discovery, in, in the lawsuits that they've been sued on. So Monsanto itself says that this is a cancer-causing agent. So and and Roundup has uh, been uh, is the the leading uh, glyphosate. Why is it still being sold and used in food production? Because even though we know all of this, well, profits over people. This Ugh. is a very lucrative industry. You don't have to sell a lot of this chemical, and you can charge tremendous amounts of money. The soil, on the other hand, is free. So what we are trying to do with this film is show people that we can have healthy food, we can have healthy gut bacteria, we can have healthy farmers that don't rely on our tax subsidies. We can actually have a healthy ecology, but we are going to have to make some changes. And look, there are some interests that may not like those changes, but let's face it, it's time to change, and change is coming. You... Uh we are told that eating organic fruits and vegetables and meat from organically raised livestock is better for our health and for the environment. Uh, and I think your film uh, pretty much makes that case. But those foods are often uh, way more expensive than conventionally grown food. What do you say to people who say they can't afford to buy organic food? Well, there are different perceptions of what uh, one needs to buy in terms of food. You know, not we're not saying, look, go to Whole Foods and get your weekly allotment of, you know, yeah, things that, that aren't necessary to eat. You know, one of the things when we did the Kiss the Ground book is we really detailed what does a healthy diet that's based on regenerative agriculture look like uh, at different price points. And what we determined is there is no really... Uh, bottom price point for this. It is, it is incredibly easy to create a healthy diet with bulk organic goods, and, and, and we detail even the goods that don't have to be organic that could be bought um, and provided for a family. And that, that's exciting to know that you know, some of this is just our addiction as a country to junk food. We eat a tremendous amount of food that is in bags, boxes, cartons, uh, that's basically reprocessed corn and soy. It's garbage, and it makes us sick. And so a lot of people say, well, I can't afford uh, organic food. And I say, well, what do you eat usually? And, uh, you know, our diets are abysmal, unfortunately, as Americans. So a lot of this is about getting back to basic foods that are healthy for us, healthy for the land, and healthy for the farmer. And that's, uh, that's a mental shift as much as anything else. Now, food waste is another issue that you address. Does composting food scraps actually make a difference? 
Absolutely. You know, we act, when we came upon this particular subject of compost um, as filmmakers, we had heard that there was something called compost wars going on in San Francisco because they had started this um, citywide composting program where everybody was required in the city of San Francisco to compost all of their food waste. And if they didn't do it, then they were charged a fine. So it was a big deal, but ultimately a very successful program for the city where the food waste gets turned into compost through recology. And then that gets put onto mostly wine wineries um, and other farms in the Napa, Sonoma, San Francisco area. But well, but when you say food waste, are we talking about everything? Because I've spoken to a number of people in the field, like Douglas Tallamy, who say you shouldn't compost meat. Uh, you should compost mostly vegetable waste. Yes. Not true. And if you're composting at home, that would yeah. be true when yeah. you're at home, 100%. Uh -huh. But when you have these big municipalities who are doing compost, they have other techniques where they're able to take all of the food scraps and turn it into healthy compost. But for somebody who's composting at home, you definitely don't want to put meat into um, your compost right. then because that will definitely lead to flies and maggots and other things. But in terms of San Francisco, there was such could that, a Could that work all over the country, the San Francisco approach? 100%. And it was so successful that the farmers were fighting over the compost because uh -huh. it was making such a tremendous difference in the quality of their food and their ability to reduce their water consumption because it was allowing them to store water in their healthy soil that was coming to life from that compost. So it's really valuable stuff. We shouldn't just be throwing it away because it is the key to turning that dead dirt back into living, healthy soil. Now, a more sensitive issue is human waste, and you show a program of composting toilets being used in Haiti. Um, uh, that would scare a lot of people, wouldn't it? Can that process waste be added to soils? Absolutely. In fact, most of the soils that you buy, um, if you're buying topsoil or potting soil at a store, most of that actually already has human waste in it. Um. Yeah, so most of the time when you go... When you go put that stuff in your in your you know chrysanthemums or whatever you're growing, you're putting human waste in that in that pot right there. You're already doing it. That's a oh really boy. untapped resource. You know, if we yeah. can keep oh boy, exactly. we keep poop in the loop, um, I think you know that really that's another amazing waste stream that could be turned into a very powerful healing um, additive to our farmland it's hard it's hard we have kind of a poop phobia so it's hard to imagine mm -hmm. you know that our but it's just it's the same thing you know fertilizer is fertilizer and when it's done and um you know in a way that burns off all of those that bad bacteria which composting does you end up with something that's rich and um ready to bring that that dead dirt back to life and obviously the cattle are fertilizing uh the the areas that they walk over when uh, they are part of the whole process that we've been discussing. I have very little time left, but I want to uh, address a couple of other things. The film includes a number of celebrities, including Ian, who we've been talking with, also Jason Mraz, Patricia Arquette, uh, Gisela Bündchen, Tom Brady. Uh, did they, are they people who have been involved in this movement? How did, you, did they wind up in your film? Kiss the Ground, the movie, and, and folks can see it on Netflix, kissetheground.com. You know, these folks, uh, all of them are passionate about this issue. Ian, uh, he, you know, traveled to Africa 
and we connected. He actually shot the first footage for the movie nine years ago oh, in Africa. Nine years ago. How many years, so, Ian? Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest with you, I mean, prior to, you know, we were shooting the Vampire Diaries and, and the, the eight-second version of this is I was speaking at a symposium in San Diego, and I met Alan Savory, who at the time had just won the Buckminster Fuller Award, and he's mm. a kind of... He's in the film, too. Grandfather. He is, yeah. I mean, I call him the grandfather of regeneration, just by virtue of the fact that since the early 70s, he was saying that soil is going to become the biggest, soil erosion is going to become the biggest um, threat to human society, you know, to, to humanity. Um, not the world, to humanity, you know what I mean? And so very few people listen, some people listen, but basically I realized, hey, listen, if this guy is telling the truth, and it's just science works, this could be the way that we reverse climate change. For him, it's revitalizing the great grasslands of the African savanna, sub-Sahara. I mean, these are the way to do it, because ultimately you can't have big trees there, and grass sequesters an enormous amount of carbon. But like we talked about earlier, it was a symbiosis between the hooved herding herbivores, say that five times, that, that lived on the land that were kept in tight packs by, you know, um, predators lurking in the, in the, dis, in the, you know, in the dark. And uh, without that symbiosis, that relationship between those animals and the grass, they can't, they can't re regenerate. So that's why I got involved um, and, or, and that's how I got involved, and it ends up the science works. And infusing that, you know, integrated animal integration with planned grazing techniques and regenerative agriculture, the two of those together, obviously with composting on large scale and what have you, but those two pieces can shift the world on its axis. And like we talked I have about to, I have to end it there, unfortunately. But my great thanks to the three of you. Uh, again, oh, the film "Kiss you. the Ground" can be found on Netflix, but also at uh, kissetheground.org. And uh, uh, go ahead. Kisstheground.com and kissthegroundmovie.com. And uh, my great thanks to Rebecca. To Kel and Josh to Kel and to Ian Summerhalder for talking about it with us. It's been a great pleasure. It's a pleasure. So great to meet you. So very much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. I want to give special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. Plus, you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if there's anything that you'd like to tell me about any of our shows, or if you'd just like to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, uh, I need to take just a few minutes to ask for your support for this radio station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this thing going. So I hope you'll step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online at give to WBAI.org or by calling 
516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And we especially need your help to get back on our feet um, because of the pandemic. It's just made our financial situation incredibly difficult. So we're asking because people who um, were regular supporters uh, suddenly find themselves um, kind of strapped for cash. So we're asking everyone who tunes into London Lopate at large and is financially able to go to our website, give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. And one great way to do that to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running, $10, $15, $20, whatever they can afford. And it's also a way for, to show their support for what we do on this show. Um, and it allows us, of course, to have cash flow, uh, to be able to prepare for the future. And right now, uh, we're not alone in uh, in facing financial difficulties. Pretty much everybody in public broadcasting is, but most other public broadcasters take money from other sources. Uh, they take ads and they, they, they take money from foundations and the like. We depend 100% on you. We are 100% reliant on the generosity of our listeners. Uh, so, uh, it, if you can become a BAI buddy, that would really be great. Uh, but whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you do it right now so that we can continue to bring these long form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you and topics that are not getting discussed enough, like the, the what we talked about today. Um, it's a really important. Uh, Maybe one of the most important things uh, that uh, we have to consider right now, and yet, um, well, you know, if you turn on the television right now, you're going to see uh, pretty much breaking news, breaking the same stories again and again and again. So not that those stories aren't important, but there are many other things happening in the world, and we uh, feel that it's our responsibility uh, to to deal with them and to bring them to you. Um, and as I said, we're 100% reliant on the generosity of listeners like you. So if you haven't already, why not make that call to 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbaiorg and sign up to become a BAI buddy. Um, we hope that you'll tune in again tomorrow when Jennifer Taub, a professor of law at Western New England University, talks about her new book, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Costs of White Collar Crime. Hope to see you then.